You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Well, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, It'll be much more enjoyable for you if you can follow along in the scriptures. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 23 this morning. Matthew chapter 23. So whether you got it on your phone, whether uh, you've got it on your paper Bible, whether you're at home and online, we're glad that you're joining us. We encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. And I want to begin with this. I need a little participation this morning. How many of you have done any push-ups lately? Raise your hand. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Keep them up. How many of you have done any pull-ups lately? Keep them up. How many of you are like, I got to work out more? Yeah. Okay. You can put your hands down. When it comes to push-ups and pull-ups, why do we do those things? It's for the... (laughs) Someone say, so I can eat ice cream? (laughs) It's so we can grow in strength. But here's what's amazing. If you want to make it even harder, when you do your pull-up, instead of just going back down after your chin goes above the bar, what should you do? Oh, just hold it. Hang. Right? If you're doing push-ups, instead of going all the way to the ground, where should you stop? Oh, about halfway and just hold it. And what does your body start to do when you do those things? It starts to shake. All of you know this. This is good. Some of you have only watched it happen, but you're like, no, I know that happens. You shake. (laughs) There's that spot of tension where our bodies literally don't know how to handle the tension that is being caused. And so we shake. And today's passage is a passage of great tension. It is not an easy passage. We've been going through the book of Matthew in its entirety, verse by verse, and we just finished Matthew chapter 22 in which Jesus has had this confrontation with the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees of his day. And Jesus is now where we are in the gospel. We're now in the last week of his life. It's only a few days before he's crucified. And we see that the religious leaders are trying to trap him in his words by asking him difficult questions. Because if they can trap him, they can accuse him of blasphemy, which was punishable by death, and they can get rid of Jesus. Make no mistake, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were trying to get rid of him. They were jealous, they were angry, they were spiteful, and they hated who he was because he claimed to be the Messiah. They wanted the glory for themselves, they wanted the power, and so their desire is to trap Jesus, but as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, they can't trap him. So much so that at the end of chapter 22, it says this, They've asked Jesus these tough questions, and a lawyer finally asked the last one, and he couldn't get Jesus. And verse 46 says, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Jesus, if we're keeping score here, wins this confrontation, but Jesus isn't just about winning. That's not what he's doing. He's equipping and building men and women for his kingdom. That is something that he always has in mind. Think about what's going on big picture. The religious leaders hate Jesus and they're confronting him. Satan is even at work on a larger scale trying to destroy Jesus. Jesus is building up, equipping and discipling his followers, readying them for his death and then his resurrection when they'll go out into all the world making disciples of Jesus Christ. And all of this happens while souls hang in the balance. There's a lot going on in the small picture of our text, and then there's a lot going on within the universe and the creator who made it. And what we see is that Jesus is not interested in simply winning the argument. What he wants to do is equip his followers. And so he's going to speak directly today to his disciples and to the crowds who are present. We can probably imagine thousands of people, because it's Passover season, that are gathered in Jerusalem that have surrounded Jesus and are watching this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. So Jesus is going to speak both to his disciples and to the masses. 
And what Jesus is going to speak about today is religious hypocrisy. Jesus confronts religious hypocrisy. Now, how many of you in your life have ever been a hypocrite? It's all of us, right? All of us. Um, I can remember some big seasons in my life when I was a total hypocrite, claiming Christ and yet living just a, a hidden, unhealthy life in which I was doing everything on the outside, but God didn't have my heart and I wasn't walking with him. And I remember that was a dark season and it tore me to pieces until the point that God brought me to the end of myself, crying out for him. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to address religious hypocrisy because it's vital for disciples of Jesus and others to understand what it looks like so that you don't follow hypocritical leaders, but instead you follow servant leaders. And the greatest servant leader of all being Jesus Christ himself. And so today's passage is a hard passage. Jesus uses some very strong language. And we're going to see that there is a significant tension in the way that he's presenting this because he both hates sin that is occurring both in his day and age and also in ours. And yet he never stops loving sinful people and pursuing them, including the religious leaders who are guilty of that religious hypocrisy. And it's important for us to hold that tension so that we don't just see, oh, this is angry Jesus. No, this is Jesus who hates what's keeping people from him and loves people who are being kept from him. And he wants to marry them together. So we begin in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not according to their works, for they say and do not do. We're going to see that Jesus is going to address this hypocrisy head on. And as a matter of fact, he's going to lead us to something called eight woes or eight charges, eight condemnations of these religious hypocrites that were existing in his day. And we're going to read in just a moment the counter or the complement to this chapter, which is in Matthew chapter 5. So why don't you turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to do some Bible surfing today, so we're going to be going back and forth quite a bit. In Matthew 23, what we're going to read today is what we are not called to do in positions of authority. And not just religious authority, but if you are a parent, you have authority over your children. If you are a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, you have some kind of authority over family. If you are an employer, you have authority over employees. And God is speaking not only to the primary context, which are these religious leaders, but also to us in the various roles and responsibilities that we are called to today. And in Matthew chapter 5, we're given the kingdom character, the Christ-like character of what we are called to be like. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, these are called the Beatitudes. Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, speaking specifically about their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek and gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can turn back to Matthew 23. This is what Christ calls us to as he begins to transform our life. These things that are mentioned, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, are not something that instantaneously happens to us when we, become, when we become followers of Christ. This is what a lifetime of God's work and massaging on our hearts, minds, and bodies turns into as we walk with Jesus. And what we're going to see in Matthew 23 is that Jesus now begins to address the negative aspects 
of religious hypocrisy or living a double life. The word hypocrite actually comes from the word in Latin or in Greek that means to be an actor in a play or in a show. The word hypocrite comes from the word to be an actor to play a part in a play or a show. And it's literally somebody who is assuming a role that's not really their real life. Uh, how many of you have Instagram accounts? There it is. Case in point for the most part, right? We only see what people want us to see. Therefore, we don't actually get to see probably who they truly are. Some of you are like, no, I put everything on Facebook. Stop doing that. (laughs) Don't do that. I'd encourage you to take notes this morning. We're going to be doing a lot of scriptural references. Some of them won't be up on the screen. Um, The first note that I have for you is Jesus gives a warning to the crowd and to his disciples and says, Jesus condemns religious acting, hypocrisy. Jesus condemns religious acting and hypocrisy. That is so important for us today because it's so easy to just go through the motions. To show up on a Sunday morning and be like, yeah, I go to church, I'm saved. Yeah, I give money, I'm saved. Yeah, I'm nice to people, I'm saved. And yet Jesus is saying, listen, don't play a role, but not really fulfill it both inside and out. Here at the Mission Church, one of our values is integrity and authenticity. Integrity and authenticity, and here's what it means. Be the same person at home and at work that you are at church. Be the same person at home and at work that you are at church. Don't be overly spiritual. Here's an example of being overly spiritual. Someone this morning in first service were like, hey, I like those shoes. If I was overly spiritual, I'd be like, thank you. Oh, mic drop. Thank you. I was at Ross and God appeared to me and said, take those shoes, my son, for your feet walk on holy ground and these shoes will guide you. Do you see where I'm going with this? That would be ridiculous. But now think of this. As Christians, we're tempted to do this all the time. We use Christianese language. And there's a difference, right? If it's genuine, then God knows your heart and no problem. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful about the words that we speak. Or, hey, God bless you, brother. No, bless you, brother. Praise Jesus Almighty. What are you doing driving that way? (laughs) If we give the appearance of holiness, and yet we're not actually living it out. This is what Jesus is calling religious hypocrisy. And it infects the church from the inside out. Notice that Jesus isn't spending his time speaking harshly against the world. The world is what the world is. They're going to oppose Christ. The world is going to wage war against the kingdom of heaven. But the most dangerous kind of enemy comes from within the body of Christ to cause division. And here's the reality for us as Christians, myself included. The more knowledge that we grow, the more righteous and holy our lives become, which both of those are good things, we also have a greater propensity to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. To think that we're better than other people because of the place where we sit and the life that we live. And this is what Jesus is warning against. And for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they have now elevated themselves to a level where the actual Messiah has come. And they don't want any part of him because they want the glory and the power and the admiration for themselves. The opposite of what a servant leader is called to be. Jesus mentions... He says that they sit in Moses' seat. Uh, If you're taking notes, write down Exodus chapter 18. Uh, Moses used to sit from morning until night judging the people of Israel until his father-in-law Jethro comes along and goes, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. Here's an idea. Why don't you teach the people the law of God so they can discern the smaller matters for themselves and actually apply it to their lives, and then you can just handle the big things. It was wise advice from Jethro. And the very next two chapters, Exodus 19 and then Exodus 20, God is giving his people the Ten Commandments.
commandments for the very purpose of us knowing the law on our own hearts, knowing the law and being able to apply it and discern in our lives. These men, these Pharisees, they sat in Moses' seat. They interpreted the law for the people. And here's the beauty of what Jesus does is he specifically says, do what they say. Do what they say. Um, sometimes when my kids and I are out and around Carlsbad, um, we know some uh, different people within the village area that are often there. And it's really interesting to me. My kids are 10, 9, 7, and 5. And people will say things to them like, hey, it's good to see you. Remember, stay in school. Don't drink. Don't do drugs. And yet, what are those people doing in their life? It's not really that funny. They're actually doing those things. And here's the reality for myself included. I know what's right, but applying it is a different matter. I know what's good. I know what's pure. I know what's lovely. I know what's true. But putting it into practice isn't easy. And this message isn't just for the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It's for each of us. So that as Jesus speaks these truths... Let the Spirit do some conviction in your life. Let Him encourage you and build you up in the areas where you're doing well. But we are called to answer God when He speaks to us so that more and more of us can be put to death so that more and more in Christ can be raised to life in our lives. They sit in Moses' seat, which means, hey, it's okay to listen to what they're saying. They're telling you to do good things. They're telling you to obey the law. Just don't do what they do. They're living a double life. What they're teaching is not actually what they're doing. That's the first sign of a poor religious leader. Someone who isn't authentic and has integrity. Someone who isn't the same person at home and at work as they are at church. And Jesus warns the crowds and his disciples. And he specifically says that they lay heavy burdens on the people. We go to verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. We'll cover that in just a little bit. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We're going to unpack these verses as we get ready to head into the eight woes, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But Jesus says some really important things here. The first thing that he accuses the Pharisees or the religious leaders with is laying heavy burdens on the people, laying heavy burdens on the people. And what Jesus means by heavy burdens is the Pharisees were the interpreters of the law. And over time, with man-made traditions, they came up with 613 rules and regulations. How many of you are good with remembering people's names? Raise your hand. Yeah, there's like four of you, right? Not many. Um, How many of you would be able to memorize 613 rules and regulations? Probably not any of us. So that every time you turn, you were doing something wrong and every time you turn there was a religious leader to be like hey not okay hey not okay hey not okay could you imagine if pastor dave and i stood at the doors and as you were coming in you were like wow that's a little ostentatious on that necklace oh hey skirt's a little short wow looks like you didn't get up till five minutes ago how would you feel walking in the doors of the church You would feel like, man, I've got I've to have everything in line and I've got to be perfect in order to come to worship. And this was becoming the heavy burden upon the people. Is they couldn't even enjoy the relationship that was meant to be between God and mankind because they were so concerned about the rules and regulations and the people pointing fingers at them from positions of authority. 
And if any of you have ever been in a work environment where you have a good boss, and a good boss still holds you accountable. A good boss isn't afraid to call you out, but a good boss builds you up and encourages you and establishes relationship and gets to know your life. But if you've ever been in a work environment where all you do is you feel like you're never doing anything up to par, you feel kicked and beaten down, and you're so concerned with not making a mistake, you can't enjoy the blessing of all the freedom you've been given in your position. This is what was happening to the people. This was the heavy burden that was laid upon them. We even see that a little bit later. In the early church, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are having the Spirit poured out on them as they confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the Jewish high council calls this meeting. And it's Peter and Paul and Barnabas. And then there's even some Pharisees that have come to Jesus to believe that he's the resurrected Messiah. And they're all determining, what do we do with these Gentile believers, these non-Jewish believers? And the sect of Pharisees suggests they should all be circumcised, and we have to teach them to follow the law of Moses, meaning those 613 rules. And it's this Jesus plus gospel. Yes, Jesus died, but you also have to, and then fill in the blank, and that's a false gospel. Paul says, let us teach Christ crucified. And that is all. And that's the beauty and the simplicity of the message of grace and love that we have been given. Is that Jesus paid for our entire life. And out of our salvation, not to earn it, but out of our salvation, we now get to live a transformed life. Becoming more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to take the burdens off of people. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 30, it's on your screens. Many of you know this already. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus came to take those burdens that were laid heavy on the people to follow rules and regulations and to earn their way into heaven. He came to set them straight. Listen, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to me. I ask you to come to me so that I can clean you up. Then it becomes Christ's work instead of our work. Jesus has the opportunity to look into these religious leaders' hearts and to reveal what is actually happening. He says in verse 5, he says, literally they do all this for what? To be seen by men. But all their works they do to be seen by men. Last week, Pastor Dave kind of unpacked uh, phylacteries. How many of you remember phylacteries? How many of you went and got some this week? Yeah, yeah no, nobody. Um, phylacteries were these leather boxes that were tied either to the wrists or to the forehead. And inside it contained scripture. And it was the literal representation of what Deuteronomy says of, hey, tie these commands, tie my scriptures to your hands and to your forehead so that you remember them. And the Pharisees were taking it literally, but they were also engorging these phylacteries by making them larger than they needed to be. This may be you in the congregation, so I apologize in advance, but how many of you have seen guys with trucks that you're like, that's unnecessary, sir? <laughs> and then he gets out and he's five foot five and you're like, oh, makes sense. I just eliminated myself from ever getting a lift on my truck. That was really, really foolish of me. Jesus is addressing, hey, our outward works. What you do when you come to church, what you do when you're at home, what you do in your workplace, what you do in your free time. These things are not to be done to win you a reputation. The whole purpose of our works is to serve others. We're given a glimpse into Jesus' mind, which is still mind-blowing to me. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 speaks of Jesus' mind. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. 
Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. If you're taking notes, write this down. Humility points us to Jesus. Hypocrisy is rooted in pride. Humility points us to Jesus. Hypocrisy is rooted in pride. We know that Jesus himself came not to be served, but to be a servant of all and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the ultimate testimony of humility. This is what Jesus wanted from his religious leaders, but instead he found men who were taking holy things and turning them into be bigger holy things so that they could reflect well on themselves. The phylacteries, the borders of the garments, which they widened so that people would see how holy they were. And this is something that maybe we do today as well. And I know we're going to ruffle some feathers today, but let's think through these things. What are some ways that people are tying phylacteries or widening their garments today? See, if you say it, then I don't get in trouble. So feel free to provide feedback. (laughs) How about those giant stickers on the back window that says, God, Jesus, going to hell. Doesn't help people. Or when we walk around with holy t-shirts or holy hats on that condemn others instead of inviting them to come and see or even the way that we can speak when you are in a conversation with a coworker who's not a follower of Jesus and they mention that they had some drinks over the weekend and you're like oh you drink <laughs> not a great way to introduce Jesus we kind of laugh at these things but they're real we need to be winsome And the way we are winsome is by showing the love of Christ, not the condemnation of the life that we were rescued from. Jesus has given us the same grace that we should desire for other people who are around us. And Jesus begins to call out all of these different things going on in the Pharisee's life. We'll take a look at these really quick. Verse 6 and 7 says, They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. This term they love, it's not that getting a best seat at a Padre game or getting the best seat at a dinner table is a bad thing. It's that they fell in love with these things. It became part of their identity. They needed to sit there in order order to show people who they were that they were important and it became a pursuit of theirs instead of pursuing a relationship with God how can I elevate myself while I step on others for the purpose of receiving the best seat or when it comes to being called a rabbi there was nothing wrong with someone being a rabbi a rabbi means teacher it can also mean lord or it can mean my master and in regards to a term of respect it probably wouldn't be that much different than saying pastor but the problem was for these religious leaders is that title shifted to become their identity And if you've ever met somebody who has done this, you're introduced to them and you go, oh, hey, Jeff, I've got a question. They're like, oh, sorry. Actually, it's Dr. Jeff. (laughs) And you're kind of taken aback like, but we're not like in a doctor's office. We're having coffee or tacos. Can I just call you Jeff? No, it's Dr. Jeff. Or CEO Susan or whatever it needs to be. Why are we laughing at that? Let's read it up. If we get wrapped up in the calling of our life of this world, whether it's in what we do or the things we've accomplished, if that becomes our identity, we start to long and love for those things to where we want more of it and to where we end up making that our highest pursuit instead of pursuing the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. And this is what had happened to the Pharisees. Jesus was literally there in front of them. The Messiah was present. He was unexpected. He wasn't like most people thought. But for goodness sakes, what did the Pharisees witness? He raised the dead. He healed the blind. They knew the scriptures. They knew what the Old Testament prophets said. And yet they scorned him for it. Not only did they scorn him for it, they attributed his works to who? To Satan himself. 
They accuse Jesus of being Beelzebub, another name for Satan. This is how much they opposed Christ. Jesus tells the Pharisees, hey, don't let anybody call you father. And it doesn't mean like you can't have a father here on earth. I have a dad or a father. What he's saying is this term of entitlement. That term is reserved only for our heavenly father. Give you an example. The Pope has many names. One is the vicar of Christ. One is the supreme pontiff. One is the sovereign over the state of the Vatican. And the other is the patriarch of all. I would not want the name supreme patriarch or anything else that belongs only to Christ in my name. And we are called as followers of Jesus who have spiritual authority in our life to beware of religious leaders that would say, oh, you have to call me this. Because this is who I am and this is where you are. Now, what does Jesus say? We are all brethren. Different roles and different responsibilities, but we are all brethren together. Christ is the head. He is the chief shepherd. No human person can take that position. And no one should be stealing glory from the Messiah that belongs to him. You still tracking with me? So Jesus gives us a positive here in verse 10 and 11, or excuse me, verse 11. He says, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus displays humility and hypocrisy is rooted in pride. Now we're going to get to six of these eight woes today. We're not going to be able to finish the entire chapter. But early on, I talked about tension that we're going to need to hold throughout this chapter. And to help us with this chapter, we're going to make a woe sandwich. (laughs) You laugh, but you'll never forget it. You'll always remember the woe sandwich, hopefully. And here's the woe sandwich. I want you to keep your hand or your finger on Matthew 23. And then I want you to turn backwards in your Bibles to the Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. It is really important for us to understand the tension that God holds or that Jesus holds throughout this passage, which means this. Oftentimes, there is a misunderstanding that people look at the Old Testament and go, oh, God was one way in the Old Testament. And then they read the New Testament and they go, God is different now in the New Testament. Listen, God was the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He does not change. And his heart and his promises are still the same. And Jesus, as much as he hates religious hypocrisy in his day and age, and in our day and age, hated it in the Old Testament day and age as well. And Ezekiel 34 gives us a good understanding. It's a bit of a long text, but it's worth the read. We're going to start in verse 2. This is Ezekiel, the prophet... Speaking to the religious leaders in Israel during this Old Testament period. Verse 2 Son of man, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. We're getting this picture of a shepherd who's literally devouring his sheep instead of caring for them and helping them multiply and grow. He's feeding off his own people. Verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who are sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back... What was driven away, nor sought after what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Does God sound pretty serious here? Bet he does. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth. And no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God. Surely, because my flock became a prey... 
and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherd, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against who? I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more for I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. God made good on what he promised. He sent his son into the world because people were shepherdless and they needed a shepherd. That's why Jesus comes. And he talks about shepherdless people being devoured by wild beasts. What are the wild beasts? You name it. It's all over the place. Right? It's Netflix, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's pornography, it's sexual sin, it's greed, it's the pursuit of that retired life to where you don't have to do anything. And people are being devoured because they have no shepherd to guide them in the ways of the Lord. God takes religious hypocrisy really seriously in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And how many of you would agree that it seems like Jesus is at least a bit angry here? Most of us would. And it's true. He has wrath for those shepherds, for those religious hypocrites who say one thing and do another. Now, as I was studying this this week... This is a sobering thought. I know the truth of God's word. I have the privilege and opportunity to stand and to teach that. Many of you who are here know God's word. And you are given the opportunity to steward it and put it into practice. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you go, and there's areas of my life where I know I'm a hypocrite? This is what Jesus is speaking to us today. Is that yes, religious hypocrites, God's going to deal with them. But in our own hypocrisy, let's let God deal with us so that when judgment day comes, he's not addressing those things. So that instead he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my presence. Back in Matthew chapter 23, this is the second part of the sandwich before we get to the woes. Second part of the sandwich before we get to the woes. Matthew 23 verse 37. Jesus speaks this after the eight woes, after condemning the religious hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. He says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Here's where the tension lies. You bet Jesus hates and is angry against religious hypocrisy. And his heart is absolutely broken. For both his people who are victims of this and for the religious leaders themselves who he desires to turn to him. And here's the beauty of Christ, is he holds this tension so well. As a good parent, it's okay to get mad at your kid for certain things. It's okay. You should. You should hate the things that are ruining their lives. And yet you should never lose the compassion and love for your son or daughter. And the desire to see them made well, even when you feel like it will never get better. This is the tension that Jesus holds in this passage. He's not just some angry, crazy God. He hates sin and he loves his people and desires to see them made right and to walk in his ways. That is what helps us understand the tension so that as we get into these first six woes, we have a better understanding of what Jesus is after from both a tone and also from a heart perspective. So are you ready to get into the six woes? Or six out of the eight woes? Yeah. All right, Peter's ready. Perfect. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. In his primary context, Jesus is speaking here to the religious leaders, and he's saying this. I am the Messiah. I came to rescue and redeem and restore Israel. And the religious leaders who are supposed to be the shepherds of my people are literally holding people back from Jesus going, no, 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 don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. He's false. Listen to us. Look at us. And they're literally keeping people from Jesus. False teaching keeps people from Jesus. False teaching keeps people from Jesus. And Jesus is not okay with this. It's why he's calling it out. It's why he's not just brushing it off. He's already won that argument with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the lawyer. He could have stopped there, but instead he needs to equip his people to have eyes to see and ears to hear what false teachings are so they don't get caught up in being kept from the kingdom of God. Mormonism is a false gospel. Jehovah Witnesses, false gospel. They say the words Jesus, they say the words crucifixion, they say the words resurrection, but they don't submit to the authority of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. And false teachings keep people from Jesus. They are dangerous. New Age spirituality It keeps people from Jesus. It makes people feel spiritual. It makes people appear spiritual. But as we'll see later in these various woes, they are dead inside. There is nothing alive in them. It's all outward works. We must be aware within the church if we are part of false teachings. What's the primary way we can know we're not part of a false teaching? It's the word. It's why we spend an hour, sometimes more, in God's word every single Sunday. It's why when you come to men's ministry, the primary part of your time is going to be spent in the scriptures. Women's ministry, scriptures, young adults ministry, scriptures. It's because we can identify false teaching by the standard God has given us to go, oh, wait a minute. What he or she is saying does not line up with God's word. That's a false teaching. And we need to be aware of that in our own lives. As we grow in Christ, are we demanding that the people we're trying to lead to Jesus do more than just believe in Jesus? Right? Romans 10.10 simply says, hey, for those of you who confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. saved." And yet it's so interesting how in church life we can be like, well, yeah, you, you have to believe, but it's really important that you stop sleeping around here and you stop drinking this and you stop watching this. Oh, and you can't wear that anymore. And that's the Jesus plus gospel. That's not the gospel. Remember, Jesus meets us in our darkest places where we're doing all of those things. How many of you, when Jesus got a hold of you, you were like, my life is not a clean life? How many of you? Yeah, all of us, right? All of us. If any of us go, no, I got myself to Jesus, that's a false gospel. And Jesus is warning the people and his disciples about this. The second woe, verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. In its primary context, again, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders and here's what was going on. Because of their religious position and authority, there were men who were to be shepherds of the people that were literally building relationships with widows for the very purpose of taking their estate and using it for personal gain. Now, it's easy for us to go, gosh, that's awful, that's horrible, that's terrible. And it is. But have you ever been tempted to take advantage of a person or a situation when you know they're vulnerable or you know you can win? Think about in sales. Sometimes when salesmen come to the door, I try to be pretty nice to them. Um, I don't push them or be mean to them. I actually try to engage in conversation. And they'll ask me, what do you do? And depending on 
what I'm experiencing, I'll tell them that uh, I, I work at a church. And immediately they're like, oh, blessings, brother. Oh, praise God. Praise Jesus. And it's hard for me to believe that it's genuine. Because they came to my door trying to do what? And now they're upselling. May we not do that in the church. May we not use religion to exploit the vulnerable. Do not use religion to exploit the vulnerable. These shepherds of Israel were literally pilfering the pockets of widows and of orphans. And they were denying them the greater things, which we'll talk about in a little bit, justice and mercy and faith. We should not use our religion to exploit other people. This is a big one among leaders when it comes to money, right? Um, How many times have we seen the church name marred, not here at the Mission Church, praise God, but in other places marred by money. Men who are seeking personal gain. Men who are engaged in dreadful activities for the purpose of growing their status. This is what Jesus is warning about. And the best way for us to tell if we are following servant leadership or if we are following religious hypocrisy is to take a look at the person we're following and are they pointing you to Jesus or are they pointing you to themselves? Isaiah chapter 10 verses 1 through 2 says this, What sorrow awaits the unjust judges and those who issue unfair laws? They deprive the poor of justice and deny the rights of the needy among my people. They prey on widows and take advantage of orphans. Jesus says something very similar in the New Testament. He says, To any of you who makes one of these little ones stumble, better it be that a millstone is hung around your neck and you be thrown into the ocean. Don't mess with my flock. Don't use your religion to exploit the vulnerable. Jesus mentions also at the end of this, we don't have time to go into it, but he does say that these religious leaders will face a greater condemnation. That there is a different degree of punishment even within hell. If hell wasn't bad enough, there are different degrees of punishment within hell reserved for those who take advantage of their religious positions. Verse 15, woe number three, you still with me? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte or one convert. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Again, Jesus is not messing around here. In Jesus' day, the Jews were actually very evangelistic, especially among the, uh, the Pharisee group. They would go into Gentile countries and they would convert people to Judaism. And that conversion meant going through the process of circumcision. It meant learning the law of Moses. But the problem was, is that they were literally making disciples of themselves instead of disciples of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, when you do that, you turn someone into twice the son of hell that you already are. Here's a scriptural example of that. The apostle Paul, before he became the apostle Paul, was trained up by a man named Gamaliel. And what we know about Gamaliel was that he was very knowledgeable in the law. And he actually had some wisdom and even spoken to the Jewish Sanhedrin about whether God was at work in the person of Jesus Christ or not. But as he raised up Paul, he raised up a disciple of himself to where Paul took that even further. And he began hunting Christians for a living, going into all manners of cities, putting whole families in prison and persecuting all the way until Jesus knocks him off his donkey on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's question is, who are you, Lord? And the response from God is, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. How does this look in our own life today? Um, Men, I need your participation in this. No trick questions, I promise. Um, How many of you really enjoy sports or you really were like a big sports guy when you were growing up? Raise your hands. (laughs) Like some guys are like, it's me. (laughs) Here's where we see it. 
As a father who is obsessed with football, it became my identity. All of my success and worth and value came from my performance on the field. If I raise my son to be like me, if I disciple him like that in that, in that area of sports, what's going to happen to my son? Oh, he'll become twice as competitive and he'll need it even more than I do. And it will become the root of his identity and my affection for him. And it will ruin his life. This can happen with sin. If generational sin in our families is not dealt with, statistically speaking, if you're an alcoholic, the chances of you having a child that's an alcoholic go up significantly. If you experience divorce in your marriage, the chances of your child experiencing divorce statistically goes up significantly. I wish it wasn't this way, but it just is. And the beauty of this is Jesus is coming to confront that problem and say, that's why I'm here, because that doesn't have to be your story. But people without the hope of Jesus Christ who are being kept away from Jesus, what hope do they have? Of course they'll follow in their father's footsteps. Of course they'll follow in their mother's footsteps. Even if they hate those things, they find themselves in them no matter what. That is the beauty of the gospel and the good news of who Jesus is, is that he comes to put an end to those things, which is why he's so against these religious leaders. He's come to put an end to religious hypocrisy. We are not to make disciples of ourselves. We are to make disciples of Jesus. Think of the Great Commission. Jesus tells his apostles as he's about to ascend into heaven. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations doing what? Baptizing them, immersing them, saturating them in the Father, Son, and Spirit. Point people to God, not yourself. Point people to God. And then teach them all that I have commanded. And if you were with us last week, do you remember what Jesus commanded when he was asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Immerse and saturate people in Jesus and teach them to obey what it looks like to love God with all your heart and to love others as yourself. This is what we're called to do as we make disciples of Christ instead of ourselves. This had become a problem uh, in Corinth. Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Apparently, there was uh, some factions breaking out. Chargers, Raiders, Padres, Dodgers, something was happening. And he says, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. Of course not. We must be wary of this, even at the mission church. Hey, where do you go to church? Oh, not the mission church. Well, (laughs) not good. Um, Hey, we laugh, but we have to be careful, right? We are to be united as the body of Christ. Now, not all churches are equal. There are some that are preaching a false gospel, and I have no problem, and certainly Pastor Dave has no problem of calling those things out. But when it comes to the body of Christ, where there are differences within styles or differences within the way that the polity is run or differences in matters that don't have to do with salvation, we should be united and not be breaking into factions. And this was a concern that was happening among the religious leaders of the day. They were following each other, making apostles or making proselytes of themselves instead of pointing people to Jesus. Woe number four. Verses 16 through 22. Woe to you, blind guides. Whoever swears by the temple says it is nothing. But whoever swears by the temple, excuse me, let me start over again. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? 
And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. The fourth woe is making promises you don't keep. Making promises you don't keep. Now what was happening in the primary context of what Jesus is calling out is some elementary school stuff. Oh yeah, I promise that I will give you my Pokemon cards if you give me your snack pack. You get the Pokemon cards, but you keep the snack pack because you had your fingers crossed. Or my favorite growing up was, hey, I promise I'll do it. And then they're like, oh, my shoelaces were crossed. (laughs) Now we laugh, but look at our world. Politicians make promises they don't keep and they don't intend to keep them. We as people enter into deep covenants like marriage or loan agreements or credit cards and many don't intend to keep them. It's just a formality. It's just a check in the box. And Jesus is saying, listen, you get so hung up You swore by the altar, but not the the gift on the altar. Listen, don't swear by anything except by God's name. Deuteronomy 6.13. But even that, Jesus goes after in Matthew chapter 5, when he says, hey, here's the best approach you can take. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Better not to make promises than to not keep the ones that God has called you to. Here's why it's so important for the religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to and us today to keep our promises. We are image bearers of God. Genesis 2 makes that very clear. Male and female, we were created in the image of God. And God always keeps his promises. Therefore, as his image bearers, when we break promises, especially when we're doing it intentionally, we are not being an image bearer of God. We're confusing people. When Christ is attached to your name and you go and you renege on commitments that you've made, that's a false testimony of who Jesus truly is. And God won't stand for these things. Woe number five, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, those are all herbs and spices, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Here's literally what was happening. The Pharisees and scribes were taking of their herb gardens and paying a tenth of that to the Levites. Should they have been doing this? Yes, they should have. Whatever God gave them, 10% of that went back to the servants of God, the Levites. But here's the problem is they were tithing their mint and their dill and their cumin and their spices and these little tiny matters, but they were neglecting the weightier matters of God's character. They were more concerned about self-promotion and neglecting God's character. On the outside, people are like, wow, that guy gives a tenth of his mint. He must be really spiritual. He must be really holy. And yet when the poor and needy came looking for a Pharisee, they were nowhere to be found. Or when the broken and the sinner who had just messed up really bad and was looking for mercy went to a religious leader, they shunned them and pointed the finger at them and condemned them. And when those who had faith that Messiah would come and that the Messiah had come in Jesus Christ, they crushed everything that they thought so that those people would turn away from Jesus and continue under the rule of the law. They were more worried about their self-promotion 
and neglecting God's character. An example of this is what Jesus gives at the end of verse 24. He says, you who strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Which is bigger? Camel, slightly. Can't even swallow a camel. That's not possible, but Jesus is making this analogy to help us get the point. Why would you strain out a gnat if you were a Jew? It's so small, I don't even know if it's kosher or not. But here's what we do know. As a Jew, you weren't allowed to eat the lifeblood in any creature. How much lifeblood is in a gnat? Not that much. Now Jesus is saying, listen, you take the time to strain the gnat. That's actually not a bad thing. That's totally fine. But you miss the main thing and you end up swallowing a camel instead. This is very much when Jesus talks about, hey, stop trying to get the speck out of your friend's eye while you have a telephone pole sticking out of your own eye. Deal with the log first before you go judging and accusing other people. The Pharisees were promoting self, but literally neglecting God's character. Micah 6.8 says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God is looking for a poor and contrite spirit. Someone who is humble. Not someone who puffs themselves up and says, look how righteous I am, Lord. Now bless me or let me do your work. He's looking for that humble person. And the last woe that we'll cover today, woe number six. Verses 25 and 26 says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. If you're taking notes, write this down. Reputation over relationship with God. Reputation over relationship with God. Um, This is the one that hit me the hardest as I was doing my study this week because I can go back to a season of my life where I grew up in the church, wonderful parents. Um, I knew all the Bible stories. I knew the Christian language. Um, I actually never drank, did drugs, partied. Um, I didn't do a lot of the things other kids were doing, but the reason why I wasn't doing them was to build my own reputation. It had nothing to do with a heart for God. And I fooled and deceived myself thinking that my righteous works had to do with my relationship with God when really it just had to do with elevating myself. And it's human nature. It's sinful nature for us to want to build our reputation. Meanwhile, we know in our brains that God sees all things and he knows all things. And yet it's interesting how we ignore that fact and we continue doing what we're doing. Jesus answers one of those questions from the last chapter. Lord, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus responds, whose face is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. In other words, give the government your money. That's fine. God wants your heart. God wants you. He wants your life in its entirety. That's what he's after. As we look at these six woes, and we'll finish these next couple of woes in the coming weeks, I want you to remember this. The tension that Jesus holds is that religious hypocrisy keeps people from Jesus. It keeps you from Jesus if you're living a hypocritical life. It keeps others from Jesus if you're living a hypocritical life. If you're in a position of authority, especially among the church, it can keep a whole lot of people from Jesus' life. But the tension we hold is that Jesus is pursuing us. Go back as we finish here to verse 37 in chapter 23. Jesus says this, How often I wanted to gather you, your children, together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus came to Israel To rescue them, to redeem them, to ransom them, to fulfill the prophecy that had been spoken of him. And yet they rejected him. 
we have that same opportunity to receive what Christ is offering to us. He has paid his life for ours. It is a free gift of salvation. We can, write, we can receive that or we can reject that. And Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, we hold tenaciously that salvation is all of grace. But we also believe with equal firmness that the ruin of man is entirely the result of his own sin. It is the will of God that saves. It is the will of man that damns. This is why Jesus came to save. On our own, we are headed for destruction. But through the hope and the power of Jesus Christ, he has come to put a stop to that destruction in order to bring us into his heavenly kingdom, in order to redeem the hypocrisy that has happened in our life and to transform our hearts so that we are living as changed people, followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.